is the NBA podcast for another NBA podcast with Shoeless Adam Danger and Joshy Numbers. Joshy, how's it going today? I uh, I'm in the building. Let's get it. Uh, but no, no, I'm I'm doing it all right, man. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. Just excited. Uh, just excited to talk basketball now that basketball's here. I was gonna say I'm I'm so happy that basketball is back because I think. Uh, you know, I love baseball, but I think we're inevitably, we're inevitably reaching a point where baseball may be no more for the season. But um, the NBA has just done a fantastic job of uh, keeping their players in the bubble. And it looks like they have more uh, staying power right now, uh, at least. So I'm very excited to have it. And high-quality basketball at that. Well, let me, let me freestyle this to you. Let me throw this at you. What is separating the NBA from the MLB at this point? Well, I think uh, as far as the NBA goes, you don't have players um, not reporting and then quitting on their team in the middle of a game. <laughs> Is there any player in particular you'd like to talk about? Uh, I just wanted to bring up uh, Jonas Cespedes, who uh, yesterday went missing from the team. Um, you know, nobody knew where he was. He hadn't told the team anything. Um, and then middle of the game, I think it was like third or fourth inning, his agent finally got like a response from him saying that he was going to opt out for the season. Um, bear in mind when team officials earlier that day had gone to look for, uh, for Suspavis, um, all of his room was already cleaned out. So he had just left, uh, left the team without telling anybody, um, then decided to tell the team later in the day. And it's fine because, um, you and I like the New York Mets, but they've just been playing awful, and I don't really blame them for wanting to leave this team because they've been really bad so far. Well, let me tell you how I found out. We we put the game on. We started the game uh, right as it kicked off yesterday afternoon, and I think one inning goes in, and I went to the bathroom, and I come back, and my wife, Tori the Terminator, goes, they can't find Cespedes. They don't know where he's at. And the genuine shock on her face and worry and she's telling me this as I'm coming down the stairs. I'm like, huh? What? What do you mean they can't find him? She goes, I just as I said, they can't find him. And I think Keith Hernandez is doing the the Mets announcing, and he goes, Well, that's not that's not appropriate not to show up for work and not tell anybody. And it was just kind of it reminds me like in terms of watching, you know, we like to watch the Spurs and we like to watch different kinds of professional teams, right? Like I don't think we've watched mm-hmm. enough poorly run teams where this may happen, this this kind of occurrence may happen and people don't bat an eye like where they just they don't know where a person is. Uh, that just seems so far removed from kind of the competent teams that we we tend to follow. Well and the thing about Suspedis is is that he he's very much a like he, he's gonna do his own thing and he reminds me of Manny Ramirez when Manny was on the Boston Red Sox and it was all, you know, Manny being Manny and he's this carefree guy and he's an excellent baseball player. That's kind of what, you know, uh, Suspedis is, but I didn't think it was like, like this is a Manny Ramirez type thing. I didn't think he was capable of that. Um, I just thought it was hilarious. And then I, I, when we talked about it yesterday, it reminded me of uh, Vontae Davis from the Buffalo Bills. (laughs) He just retired um, after the first half of a game and then just left. Like he left the facilities and everything. Um, So I was getting flashbacks of that, but yeah, it definitely makes you, uh, makes you proud and happy that you have a well-run organization like the, like the Spurs. Um, Obviously like the, the Spurs, you know, didn't handle the Kawhi thing maybe as best as possible, but um, 
yeah, at least we just never had a player just not tell anybody where they were going um, until it was the middle of the game. I remember, I think it was the Sklars, and I want to say it was like a, a St. Louis Cardinal who, like, they were in the World Series, and they lost, and the guy just, like, went out the back. I guess the wall, there was a little door that led into the parking lot, and then he just drove away in his own yeah. little uniform. He didn't even hit the showers. Full uniform. He just left. He didn't want to be there, and that's uh, fine. God, so, again, just, it was so, it was in real time. There was a little bit of panic for a couple of innings because... It wasn't until maybe the the fourth inning that they said they're not worried about his life. They just said he did not show up for work. And it wasn't until maybe after the game that they said, yeah, he's out for this season. He's not coming back. He really information to his agent who then related to the team. Um, but it was really scary for that first couple of innings. Like, well, where is this guy? Do you, like, I mean, we were watching too many, like, true detective shows. So we're like, yeah, no I, I mean, every- is at. Everything we've been watching, like like Fear City or like Tiger King or anything like that on Netflix, has just led you to the worst like possible outcome. And uh, he just he just didn't feel like showing up to work. And you know, whatever he's gonna go home. He's probably gonna have a barbecue with his family. It's gonna be all right. Oh no, I'm done. I left early. Like <laughs> just... uh, and then it's just starting to remind me of just like when when you're at work and people just don't show up and don't tell anybody. And in the business, you call it a no call no show. And it's just like you couldn't you couldn't just say, yeah, I'm not coming in today. Not happening. See you later. Like the professional courtesy of like, I'm not coming back. Uh, which I don't know if that says so much about Suspendas as it does maybe about the Mets, right? Maybe they're just such an, in such disarray that they're just they don't have that strong relationship with players that they don't even have the, enough respect to say, like, I'm done. I'm not I'm not gonna do this anymore. This is a guy that they picked up mid season in, in twenty fifteen and um like he he helped lead them to the uh, to the World Series that year, and they they inevitably got crushed by the Royals in that World Series. But uh, man, like this is a franchise like five years ago, they had like three of the best pitchers in the National League. They had Suspedes, who just looked like he was going to be another other worldly player, and they've just squandered all of that completely. Um, just bad decision making. So. I, I love the New York Mets. Um, unfortunately, I don't know if you're even the worst run team in all of New York. Um, that the the Knicks and the Jets are kind of fighting with that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, Met, Mets are definitely top three of poorly run teams in New York. Well, just poor leadership. And I feel like that's become a theme of some of our shows. It's just like the effects of poor leadership and poor governance and how we like to poke fun at that. I don't know if we, have, we actually like started off recording thinking about this but i feel like this has become a common theme for us it's just gonna be it's just gonna be a reoccurring segment on like poor leadership and then we'll just we'll just choose which one made us laugh the most yeah the most hilarious one well switching gears the main thing we want to talk about today is the return of the nba back in the bubble and i think i can speak for both of us saying that we're very excited how many games you've been watching this weekend uh, man, I, I at least watched about six or seven. I watched all four games that were on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched uh, the Rockets-Mavericks game on Friday night. I watched the two games that um, were on Thursday as well. And then yesterday yeah. I watched um, I watched the Spurs game, uh, of course. And then I watched uh, Milwaukee-Houston. And I also watched the Spurs-Kings game on, on Friday night, too. Yeah, no, I'm in the same boat. I just can't get enough of watching basketball. And I think maybe you and I are in the same boat in terms of, like, this summer, whether we're watching 
old games, old highlights. Uh, I was watching a lot of old USA basketball, but sometimes they have mm-hmm. the entire games on YouTube that you can watch, as well as watching The Last Dance with Michael Jordan. It just, I think I've said it before, but it really stoked the fires of my fandom that had been kind of uh, waning in the past few years, the past few seasons, and heck, maybe the past, maybe since 2014, where I, I kind of have taken a passive interest in basketball, not as much as I, I'd like to, and now it's kind of coming back and a renewed uh, passion, a renewed interest, but also seeing it from a different lens. And that's one of the things I want to talk about today is just um, the different lens that I'm noticing about watching basketball and how teams are run, specifically the Spurs. And it's led me to think about something. The topic that I want to discuss today is we're very excited. I think after watching the first couple of games, we're excited to see the Spurs, A, play pretty well. I mean, this past season, mm-hmm. they were just really up and down, and it just wasn't fun to watch. You'd watch a game, and there would be so many mistakes. There would be so many uh, futile offensive you know, uh, and, de- and defensive lapses. It just was not fun to watch. Even even bad teams are, are fun to watch because you can see guys dunk and shoot threes and do crazy stuff, but this wasn't the team to do it. It was just it was bad basketball, and, it, and the Spurs really, this before the uh, lockout, Really couldn't uh, get anything going. It just wasn't fun to watch. And now you're seeing a, I would, I want to say, a rejuvenated Spurs team without Lamarcus Aldridge, without Trey Lyles, uh, and they're they're just playing all of their young guys. It seemed seemingly all of their young guys. It is a different brand of basketball. It's more exciting. It's more fun. Um, and we're kind of asking ourselves, you know, why didn't we do this sooner, right? Like, why didn't we kind mm-hmm. of go with these younger players sooner? And I think I have an idea why. And I think, and here's my Here's my philosophy. Here's my idea. And Josh Numbers, I want you to call me on it. Tell me what you agree with. Tell me what you don't agree with. But here's my idea. The idea is that while we want to see younger players play, and for, I'd say, the past 20 years, I've been on the train of, like, if you draft a young player, you bring in a young player, they need to play right away. Uh, these are the young players that can dunk and they can shoot threes and they have a lot of energy. They can really power a team as opposed to staying with a, a veteran who uh, is going to be solid, but they're, they've already hit their ceiling as a player. And they're not going to do anything kind of wild or outrageous. not going to do anything too exciting. Be somewhat competent. And I've always been kind of against that. I've always said, you know, roll the dice with the young players. See what you have. Put the young players in, in big positions and big situations and see what they do and help, help them grow a little bit. And now... Maybe in the past year, I've only come around to like, no, I'd rather kind of hedge my bets on the veteran player to not make mistakes, to run the offense effectively, make smart decisions. I value that a little bit more than just kind of the fire of youth, the fire of um, being super athletic, but making mistakes and and not being able to run offense when in crunch time or when things get tough. You know, what do you think about that? Just as a first declaration. Well, you know, and I I sort of agree. I I still wish that a lot of the young guys got more time. And I think that just goes back to an old coaching philosophy. Um, You know, Pop's done that pretty much his entire tenure uh, uh, with the Spurs, with maybe a few exceptions. You know, you have a guy like Tim Duncan coming into the league. um, And, you know, he was just this dominant force. He knew he was going to be great right off the bat, right? So he plays. Um, Tony Parker, like a, another young guy, a very young guy. He was 19 when he hit the league. And, um, you know, within within 10 games of the NBA season, uh, you know, kicking off, he's already starting games as a rookie. Um, you know, and your man who obviously had time in Europe. So he was kind of a, 
a little bit of a veteran coming in when he was in his first year. Um, and maybe like George Hill. George Hill was probably one of the last guys that I remember that was getting, um, you know, rotation minutes as a rookie. Um, because even even when we had Kawhi, uh, Kawhi's first year, he still really wasn't, um, you know, too much in the rotation. I mean, maybe he was playing less than 10 minutes a game, but it wasn't like he was making any difference. Um, I've kind of been of the mindset that I think we need to develop some of these younger guys. And, you know, the team's done a decent job of keeping them in Austin and, you know, bringing up every once in a while. I think this season's just been weird. There's been a lot of injuries. Um, you know, this team doesn't have quite a solidified playoff spot like they have the past 20 some odd years. So it kind of makes it, you know, a little more interesting on how you're building your rotations. And I think that's why you see younger guys like Keldon Johnson, um, who probably just would have been spending his whole entire year in Austin. He's now become like a very vital player in that Spurs rotation these past couple of games. Um, and even somebody like the like Derek White last year, um, you know, who was starting to get more rotation minutes and, and is now a guy that, uh, you know, was coming off the bench for most of the season, but was really finishing games. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that veteran presence is needed, uh, but I, I I still would like to see a lot of these young guys play. And I think that's what's excited me about these first two games is that you're seeing guys like Derek White and DeJounte Murray and Lonnie Walker all playing with each other. You know, it's not just here's five minutes here or there. Like they're all playing minutes with each other and sometimes even crunch time minutes, which is great. Um, I don't know. I, I think that's kind of maybe reinvigorated the team a little bit. I don't know if you've noticed that either, but. Yeah, I, I definitely have. I've definitely noticed, like, on the defensive end, you know, you're seeing these long-armed guys, the DeJounte Murrays and the Lonnie Walkers and Keldon Johnson's just getting deflections and that leading to a fast break. And I feel like right now the team is playing very old-school basketball. I'm, I'm thinking, like, Celtics in the 60s kind of basketball where a guy like Pearl is going to get a block or there's going to be gank rebounding or there's going to be a deflection, and that just leads to uh, a fast break. And if you can score on the fast break, that's just easier than having to set up the offense. And you let these young guys, you know, just fly to the rim and get layups or try to shoot threes. Uh, but it's, it's all sparked on the defensive end. And, like, that's a trope of Greg Popovich is you have to be very strong defensively. So that, that's made it more exciting to watch the past, uh, you know, some of the exhibition games and, and some of these games the past uh, against the Kings and against the Grizzlies. As you've seen that through the first three quarters – the Spurs are able to kind of run up and down the court with anybody and get layups and, and shoot um, inside the foul line and just get baskets. And the, one of the things I wanted to bring up is just parts of the team. You know, what we talk about rotations, I think you can classify uh, players along these four classifications. And with that, you know, Josh Numbers, you and I being people leaders, I think you and I can understand different these different classifications when it comes to like career, when it comes to work. You're the kind of people that you lead and you coach them differently as opposed, you know, according to where they are in these four classifications. Uh, the top classification is the fewest. You have the franchise players. Obviously, these are the players that are the MVPs, the perennial all-stars. They are going to lead your team in, in usually minutes, points, productivity. Uh, you know, we're in the top echelon of your Giannis's, your LeBron James. Uh, you know, there's, there's only so many really franchise guys. Not every team has a franchise guy. And off air, I was telling you, I don't think the Spurs themselves have, you know, a classic franchise guy. They probably haven't had one since, uh, you know, Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, and Manu. 
uh, each, I think, had a time when they were the franchise guy. Uh, but at this time, I don't think this team has that player just yet. Yeah, and, and I think maybe that one last season with Kawhi where he got sure, uh, sure. injured in, from 2015 to 2016, he was he was a franchise guy. I I think that he was kind of carrying the mantle at that point. And then unfortunately he gets injured. Um, but there's there's not many franchise guys out there. Um, Giannis and LeBron spring to mind. Um, James Harden definitely won. Steph Curry is is another one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean sometimes you know, and and you don't even know what you have. Like I think people talk like a, a team like Philadelphia has like a Joel Embiid and a Ben Simmons, and I think those guys are really good players, but. I don't know if either one of those guys is a franchise guy. Um, and it's it's very hard to have one. And I think it's very hard to try to win a title without one. Um, I think the probably the 2014 Spurs are probably the last team to kind of win a title without. I mean, you know, they obviously had Tim and Kawhi, but um, that was a more team oriented team, uh, you know, team. Right. I mean, uh, Kawhi still wasn't the player that he is now. And. Tim Duncan was obviously winding down, but, you know, you look at the team since then, you know, the Warriors have had, um, you know, the, uh, have had Steph Steph Curry, and um, Kevin Durant. And then, yeah. And, and then you had, you know, uh, the Cavs with their title, you know, they had LeBron, you know, the, the best player on the planet. Um, and even to a lesser extent, Kyrie Irving, you know, depending on how, how you think of him. Um, and even last year's Raptors team, I mean, they had Kawhi, who's now evolved into that franchise guy. Um, but it's it really is very hard to win a title if you don't have the franchise guy. You have to be a, a team that's just perfectly built. Right. And I think when we talk about franchise guys, too, and aside from just your all-star, right, just like an all-star players, a franchise guy has to do it for 80 to 100 games every year. You mm-hmm. have to do it 80 to 100. You can't just be some games. You can't just get hot and have a hot month and then, you know, go kind of back to pedestrian numbers. You have to do it every game it has to be at 80 to 100 games again that's a lot to ask but not everyone can do it uh, but that's what makes kind of franchise guys truly remarkable is that they can do it they can do it on this team they can do it on any team they're always going to be very very talented and very very hardworking. they're going to be that right combination of ultra talented but also ultra focused so that's where we have franchise players and again on this team i don't think we have it. i think we've got really good players but i don't think they can they could shoulder the burden of being franchise guys uh, anymore. Uh, but that brings us to our next level, which I, I put down good veterans. I may have to give it another name, but these are going to be really highly skilled players that know what to do. Uh, you don't have to coach them too much. They're going to come in. They're going to be consistent. Above all, they're going to be consistent. They're going to do things uh, correctly. They're not going to make too many mistakes. And you're going to look to these really good veterans players uh, to lead the team and to run your offense and defense effectively. And with that classification, I put good veterans currently on this first. I put DeMar, Rudy, Patty, Marco, and LA, even though he's injured and Marco was injured as well. Again, these are the players that we look to to hit big shots, again, and not make mistakes and consistently do it every day, show up every day. And, uh, and they may make, make a mistake here or there, but you can really count on them and you can you don't have to micromanage them. You just let them uh, do what they need to do and kind of polish off a few things or show them, hey, I kind of want you to try this. Again, very, very smart, very, very consistent, uh, but you don't really have to kind of overcoach them. Yeah, and 
I think you saw that with DeMar uh, yesterday. Uh, he kind of took over in the last few minutes. I mean, he missed a couple of clutch free throws, but he was hitting shots down the stretch. He was uh, he was catching guys and, and having decent passes. I think he had 10 or 11 assists on Friday against Sacramento, too. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and he was very good down the stretch in that Sacramento game um, and, and definitely, you know, hit some big shots uh, uh, yesterday afternoon. Um, and same thing with Patty, too. Patty has had a really good presence off the bench, uh, and he's always been an instant offense type of guy. And you've definitely seen that the past two games, too, where he's just coming off the bench. He's given you 10 to 11 points, and, you know, he's hitting those open jumpers or maybe, you know, when they're running and, you know, they have a nice mismatch or, you know, he has, a, you know, he has somebody on him that he knows he can take. He'll just go ahead and pull up. Um, yeah, I, LaMarcus was kind of that guy of, you know, you knew he was going to be good for maybe 18 and 11, um, you know, night in and night out. And, you know, it's tough to say if his presence is missed right now. But, uh, yeah, Mar- Marco Bellinelli, too. Marco Bellinelli was a guy that um, could just shoot a nice spot up three whenever you needed it. He was, you know, probably the purest shooter that we had on the team. Um, you know, and you're definitely missing that. So I definitely would agree with that classification for, for those players on our team. And I think right now Rudy Gay, Rudy Gay's been having a yeah, really, really I, I, and I forgot about summer. I forgot about Rudy. Yeah, Rudy's just been great, and um, even if he's not hitting shots, like he brings a certain level of toughness and leadership that you need. I mean, he's he's a guy that's been around for over a decade, and you know it feels weird to say that because I remember when he was uh, when he was at UConn, um, you know, and he was t- highly touted there. But yeah, he's he's been a guy that's just been you know, able to play decent defense, to get up shots, to find guys. And, and you know, picking his spots, he's able to, like, he knows when to go for the three. He knows when to be aggressive, and he knows when to pull back and set the play up for Alani or DeJounte or or you kick the ball out to Derek White. Like, he, you can see also in the game, too, when somebody makes a mistake, if there's a turnover, he's pulling a Drew Eubanks aside and saying, no, I need you to be here. Yeah. I need you to be at this so I can pass it to you. Because you can see that in the fourth quarter, things were tightening up. And they were doubling Rudy, and they were doubling DeMar. And some of the younger guys weren't in the spots that they needed to be. Like, they weren't there for the outlet pass to hit a three or to run underneath the rim and get a, you know, get a putback. So you can see Rudy has been playing so well and that he, again, that's what makes him a great veteran is that uh, he knows exactly where he needs to be. He knows how the offense is going to flow. He knows the how and the why. And he can try to impart that to the other player. Like, look, again, a young guy like Drew Eubanks who hasn't really played for the Spurs, meaningful minutes. Well, now we got to rely on him. If, if someone like Jakob's in trouble, I need you to come closer and come to the ball. Don't like, you know, don't be behind other people. I can't get you the ball that way. Like, I can't take advantage of this defense. So again, I think Rudy's been playing really well. Jabbar, I think what he has to do is the first big quarters, let the young guys run, set them up for success, set them up for three, set them up brother uh, cutting. But then he's got to be the he and Rudy have to be the focal point of the offense in the fourth quarter. They have to play the entire fourth quarter because they know what to do. They know how to attack. They know when to attack. They know when to kind of pull back. I, so I think I'd like to see that more in the fourth quarters. Run the offense through Rudy and Demar, and let the other three guys on the floor, you know, play the perimeter. Just try to get open, right? But yeah. let them make the big decisions so it doesn't lead to like you don't have a Lonnie kind of getting lost or even Dejounte kind of getting lost and throwing the ball away when you can't afford a turnover. You know, you, you definitely saw it with Eubanks. And it's almost like really kind of lit a fire in there, Drew Eubanks' ass yeah. yesterday. I mean, 
Um, he kind of came in a little bit soft, and Pirtle uh, got in foul trouble. And then Eubanks kind of he was getting bullied around by uh, Valanciunas and um, and Jaron Jackson Jr. And then you could tell toward, towards the end, but uh, you know before the, he uh, before he sat down for the rest of the game. I mean, he was getting really aggressive. He had that one nice dunk, and he was just, you know, kind of playing nice D on, on Valanciunas yeah. for the last few minutes there. So I, I really enjoyed seeing that, and I think that's because you have a guy like Rudy Gay telling him, hey, you're missing this assignment, or I need you to be here, or I need you to be more aggressive because this guy's pushing you around. Exactly, exactly. And I think, again, that's why you want those good veterans on the team uh, to kind of, you know, it's not just the coaches are telling you, you need to do this, you need to do this. They have to kind of be in a scenario to see, oh, this is what I need to do. I need to come here um, to, to make the most out of it. The next classification I'd go to is these are up and down. These are going to be players and, again, people on your team that you know they can do the job. You've seen flashes where they can do it. The only thing that separates them from being good veterans is consistency. They just, for whatever reason, cannot do it at a high level every time. And uh, I think you've seen this too. Sometimes, you know, a person may have a good week, they have a good two weeks, but then that third week, it goes to the toilet and they make boneheaded mistakes. And these are mistakes that they've made before. And for whatever reason, they just haven't learned from them. The light hasn't turned on, right? And it happens sometimes if you're an up and down player, sometimes the light switch goes off and then something changes and you elevate to your good veteran, maybe franchise, but it's not very likely. But you, you start putting the pieces together, and again, you, you cut down on the turnovers, you cut down on the mistakes, and you can feel the game. And you know when you need to, to push down on the gas and, and be aggressive, and you know when you can spend some time and, and be a little more meticulous. And under my up-and-down players, I have DeJounte. I think DeJounte is mm-hmm. classically up-and-down. We have seen this guy for several years now really be aggressive, and he could do some amazing things cutting to the rim, but he gets just as likely to bounce the ball off his knee. Like he's yeah he's really uh, careless with the ball still, and he really shouldn't be. He's been in the league too long to be just so careless. And uh, there was a, a an instance yesterday when Jakob fouled out, is that Dejounte was driving to the rim and they were running the break with Jakob, and he passes the ball to Jakob, but Jakob gets like two people in front of him and gets a charge and fouls out. And again, if you're Dejounte, you need to be smarter. You need to understand that. Oh, I can't really, you know, feed the big guy here because he's. I'm just setting him up to take a charge, you know, or to to um, uh, offensive foul. Like he should have known. Okay, I'm gonna just kind of come back. And again, someone like Tony and, and Manu understood that. Where they, I know when to run and I know when to feed the big guy and I know when like I'm not setting that person up. I'm gonna just maybe come out and, and uh, flare out to the other end of the the three point line and let the offense set up. Right again. DeJounte, he's up and down, and we really need him to, hopefully in this series, become a little more disciplined and become that good veteran where he's not going to make the same mistakes over again. He's going to understand what the defense is doing. He's going to understand when to be aggressive, when to take good shots, uh, and not just be kind of all over the place. Yeah, and and the thing about DeJounte is, you know, he's going to give 100% effort on defense, and, and that's not something that um, that you can take for granted. I mean, as great as John Morant has been uh, this season, and, and I think he's hands down rookie of the year just because Zion never didn't play enough games, but he played really good defense on John Morant yesterday. And John Morant had a couple of, you know, open looks and a couple of alley-oops there, but 
Um, DeJounte really kind of locked him down, but it's it's the offensive spectrum where you never know what you're going to get from DeJounte. Um, he'll bounce it off some guy and the ball will go out of bounds or he'll put the guy in the wrong position. Like you said, you know, <laughs> somebody else is drawing a, a, a charge and then all of a sudden, you know, Yako Pearl's falling out. Um, he had a fast break layup that he just blankly missed. Yeah. Like he he yeah. should have had it. Um, but also, like, with that, like, he was just pulling up from you know, 12 to 14 feet yesterday. And that was just money in the bank. Like you couldn't stop him. Um, and I wish that we would see more of that uh, on the offensive end. He, you know, DeJounte is one of these guys that a couple of years ago, I was saying he could be a poor man's Russell Westbrook. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case now, just because offensively, I don't, I don't think he's as aggressive or as smart as a player as Westbrook is, but you know, he's going to bring it defensively, but he still makes too many mistakes on the offensive end. I think another guy that you're probably going to bring up here on this tier is, is Derek White. Um, yep. And Derek White is just really, like, I, for me, he's the epitome of, <laughs> of just kind of that tier. Um, and you really saw that in the Denver series last year where uh, uh, he was the second best player in that series. Um, you know, Jokic, obviously, I think he averaged a triple-double in that series. Um, but Derek White was hands down the second best player in that series. The only thing that kept him from being the first best player in that series is he had two games where he just didn't show up at all. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I think he had like four points in, in the closeout game. It's just like you can't do that, um, especially when he was just running circles around Jamal Murray for most of that series. But he's a guy that, you know, he'll get 20 or 25 and you're like, yeah, this guy can score like he can get it done. He's he's a decent defender. I don't think he's as great as a defender as DeJounte, but he's still a real good defender. Um, but you're like, this guy can light him up. And then the next game, you know, he's got like four points or six points and he's, you know, two of 12 of, of shooting. Like he's just, I really want to see more consistency from him. I thought he was going to sort of take the the leap this year and maybe be, um, kind of maybe not even the point guard, but kind of the combo guard of the future for this team. And, um, you really haven't seen that from him, uh, this year, you know, he's been really, really boomer bust this season. Yeah, I was going to say he's he's up and down, but I think he's trending up. I think he can move into that good veteran status. His three-point ball has gotten a lot better. Um, he's he's a little more polished, I think, than DeJounte on the offensive end. And he can dribble the ball. Like He's, good, he's got a good handle. Uh, he just has to do it consistently. I think, again, he's got to do it every day. So every game that we have left to play, he's really got to show up and show out. And I think he's off to a good start. Uh, and so he's just got to finish really hot. So going into next year, he's firmly in that good veteran status. Like we know what he's going to bring, and he's going to um, you know definitely be a starter. Uh, next on the list, and I'll just kind of run through these: Jakob, uh, Chemezi, Zeller, uh, Bryn Forbes, who's injured, I guess right now. Uh, you know, he's always going to be up and down. And Trey Lyles, uh, although I put Trey Lyles mm-hmm. is trending up as well. So this is probably the first season. Uh, Trey Lyles with the team that I think was he last season? No, no, we we got him this season. Uh, we got him. We picked him up after Marcus Morris decided he right, didn't right. want to be a real man. But I feel <laughs> I feel like that might be an instance where you see a player with a light turned on. Like he got yeah. up and down his entire career, and he came here, and I think the light turned on. He just unfortunately was injured. But I think, you know, if we hold on to him, that's going to be a player that's an ascending player that gets to that good veteran. Again, just a smart player, limits mistakes, knows how to attack, knows when to attack, knows how to uh, defend. 
as you know, not going to make too many mistakes. He can uh, hit that corner just, three really well. Yeah, too. he just needs to be consistent and, and, and healthy. Um, and like I said, Chemezi, I think he'll always just be up and down. I don't know if he'll ever, you know, uh, be polished enough or be in the right area where he needs to be. Um, I think he frequently gets just out of position on defense. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, and the same with Jakob. I think Jakob is. I think he should be starting. He just has to stay out of foul trouble, right? He just yeah. really has to make sure that he's not getting moving screens or anything ticky tack that takes him out of the game. Because you know, even next year, I think we should start him. I think he should be starting. He just he's too important to um, to you know lose to you know charges or uh, moving screens. And real quickly on Jakob, I mean, the, the effort is there for, for Jakob. And he's been really good on the defensive end, and especially in the small ball lineup that we saw for most of the game yesterday where he was a five and, and DeMar DeRozan was a four. But, you know, he was he was getting into it with Valanciunas. I mean, those two were just kind of going back and forth. And um, I think that says more about Jakob because I think Jonas Valanciunas is a really good – I don't think he's a great yeah. player, but I think he's a really good player. Um, and, he, you know, he's a tough guy and he can throw his weight around. And, and Jakob was really kind of holding his own for him uh, or, or with him. Um, just happened to get in foul trouble. But he's a guy that, you know, he'll always find himself wide open for a jumper or for a dunk. I, I, I really think that he needs to be starting. I, I think that um, and we'll see how he fares tonight against against the Sixers uh, with Joel Embiid. I, I think that's going to be a decent test for him because I think he is a five that can definitely move away from the post too uh for some of those guys that like to you know maybe play around the perimeter um but yeah he he definitely needs to do that more on a consistent basis one guy i don't know where you had him in your tier uh but he's really been playing well i think is kelvin johnson too um sure and I, I don't know which tier you had him in so i have the last tier i have is just novice and rookies and these are going to be players with under two years experience uh playing for your team that they have promise. Uh, they're still going to make mistakes. They're still going to make brain farts. But through proper coaching, again, this is the time where you teach the how and the why. This is how our offense works, and this is why our offense works. This is what are your responsibilities. This is why you have to maintain these responsibilities. And for the first two years, you want to just make sure that they're growing, they're learning, they're understanding. And you really hope that they kind of move to that good veteran role or, heck, even uh, franchise player. Sometimes it happens. It's very rare. Um, so I think half the time they kind of go into that good veteran. Like after two years, they understand it. The light goes off. They can transition to becoming really strong players. And other times, the other half is they become up and down. Like you see flashes of brilliance for the first two years, maybe three years, but they still make mistakes. And again, they're still making the same mistakes that they should have learned a season or two before, right? Um, so with Keldon Johnson, I put Keldon and Lonnie. I put them as trending up. I even put Eubanks as trending up. I was upset at Eubanks in the Sacramento game, but I think he really showed a lot of toughness last night. But with Keldon and Lonnie, you're seeing these young guys that are just showing energy, and they're just playing, and they're showing you these flashes of ability to really do something big and to, especially with Keldon. I was telling Tori the Terminator about this, who, you know, if you're listening, folks, Tori the Terminator is a real basketball mind in this marriage. Uh, but we were talking about what does Keldon bring that's just pretty evident. And I think right now it's his energy, it's his vision, and uh, his ability to pass. And I think him just doing that, those three things, really shows that he has the tools. Those are things you can't really coach. Yeah. You can't really teach a person that. They have to come in with you know this ability, this energy to do it, uh, a vision, and, uh, and everything else can grow from there. So 
And it's just, it's like night and day just seeing kind of Keldon. I forget that he's a rookie. I thought he was already a second year player because he's just been just well showing out. And and one of the things about Keldon is, you know, he spent a lot of time in Austin. He was playing really well for the Austin Spurs. Um, but yeah, he's a guy that these past few games, he's, he's been really good about making passes, hustling on defense, um, getting good shots too. Um, and I think maybe that comes from just how he is as a player. Uh, even before coming into the league, he was kind of looked at as one of the steals in the drafts, uh, you know, when we picked oh, him yeah. up last year. But he's also a guy, you got to remember, he played for a blue blood program in Kentucky uh, un- under John Calipari. And, you know, Cal, one of Cal's things is he wants to get players ready for the, you know, for the NBA, NBA. Um, you know, whether or not he's going to win a, a title or not. He likes to get guys ready. And I think that's what you saw with Keldon Johnson, too. I, I think he's just, you know, he looks like he could be a solid rotation guy for the rest of this season and maybe even next year, um, you know, and you, I don't know what he's going to evolve into, if he's going to evolve into um, a guy, a go to guy or not. But he looks like, you know, he's going to be good for you know, 11, 13 points a game, uh, you know, and hustle on defense. Lonnie, on the other hand, I, I like Lonnie. I think he has flashes where he definitely, uh, you know, he looks like he could be a guy, um, but he also just makes mistakes. He'll take a uncontested open three and just miss it, or he'll take a shot uh, early in the shot clock and just miss it. He's going to be interesting to watch next year. Um, just yeah. because I, if I don't, th- I, I think if he doesn't put it together next year and if he's not playing meaningful rotation minutes, um, you know, he could be on to another team or maybe even out of the league completely. Um, just because there's just so much inconsistency. Like I said, he definitely has it. He has the tools and ability to do so. It's just about putting it together. Um, but it, to me, he, he still kind of makes, I think he's trending upwards uh, just based off of the past couple of games, but you know, you definitely see kind of those head nodding mistakes where you're just like, oh, he's getting burned by somebody on defense or, you know, he's just taking a, a you know, a three really early in the shot clock. And you're right. like, why is. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think I think the exhibition games he's been playing people. Honestly, if Kelvin Johnson was on the team, I think we'd be talking about Lonnie a little more. Yeah. Uh, again, he's just bringing a lot of energy and just a, a fresh. Uh, approach uh, to the team and just kind of just bringing some young legs coming from the perimeter. And so I think I'm, I'm right there with you. I think after this season, going into next season, I really hope he's in that again, good veteran. He just knows what to do. The lights turned on. He's ascending to that role of like, I know what to do and I can do it consistently. Um, and it's kind of head or tails. Cause I mean, he could go into next season and just be really up and down still and maybe yeah. not grasping the offense and not grasping his responsibilities. And, and he might be a player that it takes maybe four or five seasons before it really turns around, you know, but I, I have high hopes. I, I, I bet on him on just being ascending. And then I love the, the two man game between him and Keldon. I think there's been spots on the floor where they almost remind me of like Manu and Marco, where they knew where the other yeah. person was going to be. And they set the other one up for success. And again, I would like to see the two of them start because I'd like to just see them play together. And yeah. Uh, and, and, and I think, I think you brought up an interesting point of it may take four or five years and, you know, it, it could be like a Victor Oladipo thing where Victor Oladipo went through a couple of teams and then found himself in Indiana. And, you know, he's injured right now, but he was, you know, he was Indiana's go-to guy and he was hitting clutch shots, you know, last season. Um, and, you know, that's not uncommon to happen. I mean, you see that stuff happen every once in a while with a guy taking four or five years or 
maybe a change of scenery or something for uh, for them to develop. Uh, Brandon Ingram is a great example of this uh, too, yeah. where um, I kind of thought, you know, maybe Brandon Ingram's just not that guy, but um, you know, for the first half of the season, Brandon Ingram played really well. He played like the guy that we thought he was going to be when he was picked second in the draft. Right. I'm right there with you. Uh, we talked a little bit about Eubanks, but I'm going to move on to the last two kind of rookie novices. Uh, Quindari Weatherspoon, I'm glad to see him playing. Uh, yeah, he's a me big too. guard. What is he, 6'4", 6'4 yeah. and a half. Uh, he kind of reminds me of those like Sasa Vujicic, like those Laker guards from 2009-2010 mm-hmm. that were just big guys. But if they develop a three, right, they're really, really dangerous because they can play pretty good defense. He can handle the ball pretty well. He doesn't make too many mistakes. And if you just hit a three... Uh, it makes you super, super dangerous. So I was glad to see Quindari Weatherspoon uh, play a little bit. And finally, we got Luca. Uh, Luke, I'm going to give him a redshirt year. Again, that's why I kind of put the mark at two years. So, like, give him two years. The first year's going to be a redshirt year. And I don't think anything he's done this year has really been anything to write home about. But I'm not going to get too worried now. If we go into next year and it's the same kind of thing and we finish next year and he hasn't really ascended or done anything, he might get into that, like, Chemezi, Meg too, just like he's on the team. You see him every once in a while. He's a human victory cigar. He just didn't put it together. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna give him an incomplete. He's getting a U. <laughs> yeah, he's he really didn't play too well in the scrimmages uh, last week, and and I think it's a toughness thing with him. I don't know if maybe Rudy or somebody else has to kind of take him under his wing because um, I think he has the talent and he has the ability to be a, a, a pretty decent player and. Even a role player sooner rather than later, I think it's his toughness. I think um, other guys can just body him, uh, and he kind of gives up. Uh, and, you know, he then after that kind of just shows lack of effort. But, you know, if he toughens up and maybe, you know, puts on some muscle, I, I think he can definitely be a guy that, you know, can be in the rotation next year playing meaningful minutes. And I think that's what's separating a Kelvin Johnson from a Luka. Kelvin's going to just energy he's going to be mm-hmm. all over the court you're going to see him all over the court and getting deflections and playing defense you know there's nothing there's nothing he's not too good for anything right yeah Whereas Luca, yeah like he's if he would just have half of that motor that kellen johnson has which is again kind of a sidebar is i used to hate cliches about this guy's a leaper and he's got a motor and i think that's just stupid because i i feel like i measure more towards um metrics and like um uh, uh, you know, oh, you can't measure a motor. That's stupid. That's that, none of that makes sense. That's old man talk. But now I think, like, yeah, I, I believe in you've got to have toughness. You've got to have a motor. You've got to energy. Like, you've got to show up, look alive. And Luca just always looks kind of disinterested. Uh, I'm not going to worry about it. I mean, I'm not there. I'm not there talking to him. I'm not there coaching to him. But I say you and I, uh, Josh, and numbers have had uh, people that we've uh, led or, or coached, and they just, you know, the lights are on, but nobody's home, and you just kind of yeah. like, I hope something turns around. I hope that you have some sort of uh, drive to do better or show up. I, you know, show me something because you know you're kind of on the back burner for now. Yeah, no, I I, I agree one hundred percent, and uh, yeah, I I think he just kind of looks disinterested. But um, again, he's another guy that's kind of been playing in Austin and kind of been tossed back and forth and you know, maybe getting a little bit of a shot with some of the injuries that we've had to the team so far. With that being said, I think, you know, I think it's a pretty fair breakdown of the team. And, and that's all to say that, like, for the Spurs, who are currently in ninth position, if they sneak into the AC, if there's some way, there's a lot of basketball to be played. There's a lot of breaks that this, this Spurs team is going to have to 
have break their way. Um, but this is if Pop can do it, if Pop can just pull like a coaching clinic, you know, I think this is only another feather in his cap of just taking players that, again, without a franchise player, with more rookies and novices and up and down players than he does have good veterans, like to take a team that's comprised this way into the playoffs for the 23rd straight year, I think it would be a masterstroke. And I don't think it's going to be anything you remember too much down the line. But if you understand kind of the context that we just laid out, how this team is, what they've been playing, uh, this is going to kind of come down to coaching. Like, can you set these guys up for success? Can you change the way you're coaching and put your trust and gamble? He's really got to gamble with these young guys to, that they're going to be able to put it together and not make too many mistakes and play you know, 48 minutes every game. Uh, if he can do that, I think it's, that's as big a feather in his cap. Uh, it's as big as any, you know, uh, championship or Western Conference uh, finals that, as a coach. Like, that's, that's just really saying something as a coach to not have the talent and still coach a team to success. Yeah, and it's, you know, the, it, it can happen. You know, uh, we'll have a play-in tournament for the eighth seed most likely because I think it's, you know, uh, the eighth and ninth seeds are within three and a half games of each other. Um, so that lends itself to us having a chance. I think we really have to kind of win out to uh, to make that eighth seed. Um, maybe you can no afford question. to lose one game, but that's, that's really about it. Um, and then, you know, if say if it ends right now, you know, we'd be playing Memphis again. And I kind of like our chances against Memphis. I think we match up really well against them. Um, and it's a team that always plays us hard. But I think ever since they kind of embarrassed us in that 2011 playoff series where, <laughs> you know, they, they beat us as the eighth seed. Um, we've kind of owned Memphis, uh, not just in the regular season, but in the playoffs as well since then. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I just like that matchup. I think, you know, we have guys like Derek White and DeJounte Murray that we can throw out John Morant, and you kind of saw that yesterday. But I don't know. I I would say out of any of the teams that have been performing to get that eighth seed, um, you know, if I'm taking Memphis out of the equation. I think San Antonio probably has the best chance of, of getting that eighth seed. Yeah, I think that Memphis is very, very similar to the Spurs. And I think what separated um, yesterday the two teams was just that we had DeMar DeRozan and Rudy Gay that were able to get, you know, scores in crunch time and really execute, and they don't really have... At least I didn't see that many veteran players. You had John yeah. Moran, and you had that guy, um, oh, was his name Brooks? Uh, yeah. He was number 24. Brooks. And so that was also the, the situation where all game, all he could do is he can just, like, like a running back, he could just get to the rim, right? But he can't yeah. shoot. Like, make the guy shoot a three. And that was a lapse that I saw Keldon do. It was like, the, um, Brooks got the ball at the three-point line, and Lonnie goes to challenge him, and then Brooks gets past him, and I think he gets a, a layup. And I was like, yeah. oh, you should have just sagged. You should have just, okay, make the guy shoot. Get by me. Like, draw a charge. You know, the guy wasn't going to do that. But, again, if you're a veteran player, if you've been watching the whole game, you're like, oh, this guy, make him shoot. And yeah. uh, you don't don't attack him because he's just going to go right by you. He was just kind of out of position. But, again, that's where maybe a more veteran player understands that. It's like, okay, I'm going to dare you to shoot. Do it. And, uh, and again, a younger player is just too uh, instinctual and, and just had the wrong, wrong play. But... I think that's the only thing that separated the Spurs is that we just had uh, players that eventually, like DeMar DeRozan, was able to to bail us out. And uh, and the Memphis Grizzlies just didn't have that. So I would like to see that. I mean, I think for the eighth seed, we've got to contend with Dallas, who's kind of up and down right now. Um, Phoenix is actually doing pretty well. That's kind of crazy is that Phoenix is actually having a pretty good season. This is kind of a... 
the bubble, I think, has really shown the teams that are prepared for this and the teams that aren't. You know, the, the players that, that kind of kept themselves in shape and are playing themselves in the shape and the players that are just out of shape and the clock is ticking for you to get back into basketball shape. Yeah, and, and I think you've kind of seen that across the board. I think Dallas is pretty much locked into that uh, six, seven seed. So, you know, they're, they're going to be there, but they're also going to be a really bad matchup for whoever they play in the first round. Um, because statistically speaking, that's the best offense of all time. Um, Phoenix has been playing really well, um, but I, I just, I don't know. There's something inside me that just says that they're not going to be able to keep it up. And I don't know if that's just because I don't like them or, you know, uh, Devin Booker's their go-to guy. And I just think that he's probably the most one-dimensional player in the NBA right now, as far as he can get his shots off and nothing else. He's not a playmaker or anything. Um, and Portland's kind of been up and down. I mean, they won the other night and then yesterday against Portland. Uh, I mean, yesterday against Boston, rather. Uh, they got down really early. They made a comeback and they only lost by four. But, you know, they still put themselves in a huge hole in that first uh, uh, in that first half. And then Sacramento, I, I think Sacramento's just kind of fading down the line. You know, we beat them on Friday. And then um, yesterday, the Orlando Magic just took it to them. So I, I think I'm about ready to call it quits on the on the Kings here this season. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're anywhere in that eighth seed with Portland, uh, Memphis, New Orleans, San Antonio, like uh, this is also a good situation because it's weird. It doesn't happen every year, right? To be in a bubble, but this is a good situation that where a team can just catch fire. Like everything just starts clicking. They start making good decisions. Enough players are healthy. They're able to execute. You don't need a long lead time. And, and we see that a lot more with uh, college basketball where just the right amount of things start clicking and a team just catches fire when you wouldn't have seen them catching fire. Like they should not have statistically beaten, you know, a higher ranked team with more talent, but things start going their way. Whereas traditionally in the NBA, you have an 82 game slog and everyone starts grinding to the finish line. And again, if you catch fire, it may be too late. Like, if you're a team that catches fire in March, it might be too late to carry you into the uh, playoffs. But now, you know, we kind of reset the deck. If you can catch fire, like, and that's what I hope for the Spurs is that they're going to make enough right decisions. They're going to catch fire and be effective. They can go into the, make just make it to the playoffs, and then we'll figure it out from there, right? Um, but I'm, I'm very excited now. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the bubble in, in general. Um what are some things that you've seen, Josh, in numbers outside of the Spurs bubble? bubble? Uh, specific teams playing well and specific teams not playing well. Um, I'll, I'll go for playing well so far. I think uh, Toronto, I, I think that they've been playing well in this bubble. Um, and they're a team that I think a lot of people thought that they would regress a little more than they have. Um, and definitely when you lose a player like Kawhi, that definitely doesn't help. But, I mean, they just, they didn't blow out the Lakers, but they really had control of that game from start to finish. I was really impressed with them. Um, and right now they're currently uh, going back and forth with Miami, but I've been really impressed with Toronto. Um, and with the Eastern Conference as a whole, I think Toronto has a really good shot of making it out of the East. I, I haven't been uh, really impressed with Boston. I think they've been up and down. We talked about uh, the game with Portland yesterday where they had a big lead and then just lost it and then we're lucky to get out of it. Um, and then even Milwaukee and, you know, I can go into Houston further in a bit, but um, Milwaukee just made so many turnovers yesterday. 
Um, and it really just kind of, they should have won that game, but they just had so many turnovers and that kind of worries me of what's going to happen if they get into a matchup with a team that likes to run a little bit small. Um, but Houston has been playing well. And I hate to say this because I hate their brand of basketball and, um, you know, never been a fan of D'Antoni ball, never been a fan of Harden or Westbrook, but they're just kind of putting it together offensively. And, um, even defensively, and it feels weird to say that about Houston or a Mike D'Antoni team in general, but I mean, they can just pop into the lane and steal the ball and then just get an easy bucket on the other end. Um, you know, so I've been kind of really impressed with how their small ball lineup has been playing, um, especially defensively. I mean, they're still getting outboarded, but I mean, for the most part, you know, they're, they've just been, they've been playing well as far as perimeter defense goes. Uh, playing poorly, I talked about Boston. They're kind of Jekyll and Hyde at this point. And I think that mostly goes to uh, a rotation problem. And I think really after the season, you have to figure out who's going to be there and who's going to leave. I think I think if you want to play Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown together, I think Gordon Hayward has to go. I think yeah. He's, he's going to be the odd man outcome at the end of the season. And I think you can get some good value for him. But I just don't think it's going to work with that team over time, uh, especially if they have to go up against a Toronto or a, or a Milwaukee. Um, and then playing poorly as well, Philadelphia, and we'll kind of see them get tested by the Spurs tonight, and we'll see how that goes. But, you know, this is a team that we thought that the, or I, I at least thought that the layoff was going to kind of benefit them. They were going to get healthy. Ben Simmons is going to get healthy. Maybe these guys kind of come together and rally together, and it's just been the exact opposite. I mean, Simmons is playing, and you know, Joel Embiid had forty points the other uh, the other night, but T.J. Warren dropped fifty uh, on them, and then you saw Joel Embiid and Shake Milton get at it, and the team just looks as dysfunctional as ever. Um, so that's just been really disappointing to see. I, I do like Philly, and I do like those guys on there, but it's getting to a point where it's like they just cannot put it together. Yeah, I just, you know, I like Brett Bound as a coach. I mean, he's a he's a Spurs a coaching tree, but just the makeup of that team doesn't make sense. And I think you do either have to keep, uh, you either have to keep Ben Simmons or you have to keep um, my man, Joel Embiid. Uh, Joel Embiid. Yeah, I don't think you can have both, right? I think they just kind of inhibit each other. I don't know if you can have a long forward that just can't shoot threes, right? Uh, because there's, the spacing is off. And again, these are our guys. When we go back to like, they're very, very talented. They just, you can't trust them to do it every game and stay focused every game and stay focused every day. It just, they don't seem to be able to do that. They get into their own heads. Um, one of the things, you know, I watched that Milwaukee game. I watched the majority of that Milwaukee Houston game last night. And one thing about Milwaukee that I think is unfortunately a staple of Budenholzer teams is this, they, they don't play enough good defense. A lot of those guys are really good perimeter players, but they are not going to stop the ball. You know, they're not going to gang rebound. They're not going to help out Giannis. Even though the Bucks were, like, beating the Rockets on the board, they couldn't just stop the Rockets. They couldn't just trap them. They couldn't get the ball out of Harden's hands and to P.J. Tucker or somebody. You know what I mean? Make somebody yeah. else have to execute the offense. And the Bucks couldn't do it. And what I don't like about, like, D'Antoni Ball... And, and I think this is more Daryl Morey. Like Daryl Morey's idea of, like, we're only going to shoot threes and dunk, and that's it, is it's almost like they're gaming the system, right? They're not playing winning basketball. Winning no, basketball involves having a system that allows, you know, free flow. Like, e basketball in and of itself is egalitarian, right? It's there to make everybody look good. 
Now, some players are going to be really good and super talented, and some players are going to be all over the hill. Some players are going to be young. But the idea of a good basketball team is that everyone's going to complement each other. And you're going to have a system, whether it's the triangle or the Princeton offense or the motion offense, where it's going to set everyone up for success and everyone's going to contribute to winning, right? It's a team game. Everyone has to contribute to winning. What Maury and D'Antoni do, it's almost like gaming the system. It's like a cryptocurrency of sorts. They just they try to exploit every little bit of a, an edge, which you know is understandable. That's what you're, you're trying to win games. That's what it is. But they don't do it in a way that I think is sustainable, and I don't think they do it in a way that makes everyone better. They wait, just wait, kind of, wait. So are you saying a team in Houston is trying to gain a competitive edge? Yes, I am saying that. Oh, boy. Now, uh, but, I'm, what I'm not saying is they're not uh, they're not resorting to bang on trash cans and or trading for broken down uh, running backs. But and I, I agree Bill with O'Brien you about Bill O'Brien. We can't have a podcast without mentioning Bill O'Brien. It's just it's written into our contracts. Um, but I, I agree with you on Daryl Morey has always been a guy that's been maybe a little bit ahead of the curve on trying to get whatever advantage that he can. And, you know. D'Antoni's kind of the same way. I, I think he kind of looks into things. Um, I don't really think he's that great of a coach. I, I think he has players that really benefit from his system. But one of the things Jeff Van Gundy brought up last night during the game was moving to the smaller lineup definitely helps Russell Westbrook's game because you have guys that can spread the floor so that if Russell Westbrook is driving to the lane, he can go ahead and get those easy lanes because Russell Westbrook, even though he's a point guard, he can still bang in the post. I mean, that's never been an issue for him. The issue has been having guys that he can just pass off to that can hit open shots or that can hit perimeter jumpers. So obviously, you know, Harden's going to get his points. He's going to get his 20 just right off the bat. But um, Westbrook was able to, you know, go ahead and find P.J. Tucker. Now, P.J. Tucker missed a like, horrendous amount of threes yesterday. But, you know, it really opened. Those were good shots, you know, and um what they ended up with 61 three-point attempts last night it was yeah, insane i think yeah. they tied the record for uh, a non-overtime game for most three-point attempts but you see that because russell westbrook is such a dangerous and dynamic player that he can drive through the lane and you don't want to give up that easy bucket so you'd rather him just pass but you also have to make sure that your pass you know those guys are covered pj tucker just took so many uncontested threes yesterday and i don't think milwaukee was ready to handle that especially if they're running a um, a larger lineup with Giannis and, uh, and Brooke Lopez. Lopez. And, you know, Lopez played well, and I thought that probably they should have gone to him a little more in crunch time because he it was should have been just, more like high-low game or something. Between yeah, Giannis he was just really taking it to them, and they kind of just, you know, they went away from that. Um, obviously, and I was talking to uh, my buddy Joseph, uh, who lives in Milwaukee, and he's a huge Bucks fan, and he brought up the fact that Eric Bledsoe didn't play, and Eric Bledsoe is usually the guy that kind of uh, would guard somebody like Westbrook. And so, you know, that goes into it too. But I also think, you know, D'Antoni and, and Daryl Morey kind of know what they have with this team. They know that they're able to, you know, really, like you said, game the system and find a way of beating them. Now, is is it sustainable? I don't think so. I think they'll run into trouble with a, a Lakers team or, you know, whoever it may be. Maybe even the, the Clippers have two of the best perimeter defenders in the NBA, right? Um, and, and that's definitely going to go ahead. No centers, though. No centers, nope. no. But <laughs> No big guys uh, uh, that are allowed to play. But I, I, and right what you said, too, is once they get into a seven-game series, 
you start figuring out what the tells are, right? So if Milwaukee plays Houston in seven games, I think Milwaukee comes out ahead in seven games. Right? It might take them seven games um, where it probably sh- they should have swept the Rockets. Uh, so that's what happens is that with these Houston teams, what we don't – it's almost like a Ponzi scheme. They keep going at it and look, look guys, oh, we figured it out again. We're so ahead of the curve. You know, but once it comes down to a series and players and coaches start making adjustments and they start doing slightly different things, um, I don't think Houston has a different um, – they don't have a different level they can go to. I don't think they have a different no. gear they can switch to. Yeah, and it happens every season. The perfect example of it was last year when they played Golden State in the second round. And we kind of knew that those two teams would meet in the playoffs. We thought it would probably be the Western Conference Finals. But, um, you know, due to seeding and Houston, you know, playing a little bit poorly during the last part of the season, they ended up being the fourth seed. But you're like, okay, this team can definitely take it. And Kevin Durant's out for Golden State. And Golden State, just they figured it out. And, And I think it takes a smart coach, too, I think. You know, Steve Kerr on the sideline. Steve Kerr is a guy that, you know, comes from the pop and Phil Jackson school of just adjusting. So even if they lose, you know, game one or two early, they're able to go ahead and find those adjustments. And then what happens? Houston ends up losing in six because Golden State is able to adjust to that style of ball. They're able to go ahead and find a lineup that works for them, especially a crunch time lineup to where they're defending, but they're also keeping the ball moving in, on the offensive side. So, you know, I, I think if you're running into a, um, a smarter coach probably, you know, probably, you know, in the second round or something, if we see like a Clippers Rockets thing, I think Doc Rivers is a smart enough coach to kind of figure out what Houston's going to be doing after a game or two and tailor his team to that and, you know, see the Clippers win in six games or something. Uh, would you count Scott Brooks as one of those smart coaches? Uh, no, no. Scott <laughs> Scott Brooks is, uh, is quote, a uh, idiot. Um, so, no. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> Uh, I believe that was you, and I believe that was during a meaningless regular season game between the Spurs and Thunder uh, eight years ago, so, I think. I just get so hot about these things. I get so hot. Uh, Scott Brooks being an idiot. Uh, well, you don't even we... you don't even like Scott Brooks coach teams either, it, and it just made you mad. I'll, I'll be honest. Sometimes I confuse Scott Brooks and Billy Donovan, but I guess they were both. Guy. They were, they were both Oklahoma City. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to close up shop. I think we've had a really good uh, expressive talk today. Well, I do want to lend you, uh, leave you all with a story that uh, I encountered today. I was at the grocery store getting a few odds and ends, and I'm putting in my groceries in the car, and I look, and there's a man. I think his wife and his daughter were walking behind him. He was pushing a cart, and he has a mask up, but it was a Guy Fox mask. Oh, my God. I don't know if that's uh, I don't know if that's appropriate for fighting off COVID, or if that was just some sort of weird ironic statement. But I was like, no, I don't. What is this guy doing? Remember, remember the third of August. Yeah, I mean, like, was, and it was a plastic mask too. It wasn't like it was like a kid's like Halloween mask, like a a Sally kind of mask. But uh, <laughs> I don't think I don't think that's going to be good for a block. But who knows? Maybe it is. Maybe he's onto something. And I'm just being prejudiced, but uh, uh, who knows? It wouldn't be the first time. He's well, trying to game ladies the system. And gentlemen, gaming, again, that just makes me so upset. Gaming, they, no one should be allowed to game the system. Well, Josh and Numbers, I'm going to sign off here. Do you have any last words for the fans? No. Uh, thank you for listening, guys. Uh, subscribe and, um, you know, your podcast uh, feature of choice. But uh, 
you know, I love that we have basketball back and hopefully we can go ahead and start doing these with a little more regularity now that we have uh, good competitive basketball to watch. And I'm not just watching the 1998 NBA playoffs. <laughs> here, here. Well, from both of us here from Radio Land USA, uh, thank you so much and have a good evening, day, morning. I don't know when you're listening to this, but, you know, take it easy. <laughs>